Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. They are known to comic fans as the Trinity, the three biggest superheroes in the world of comics, all published today by DC Comics. And yet, lately, with the exception of Wonder Woman and more recently the Joker, DC movies aren't great. Wonder Woman was actually released at a time when there was a big push to create a shared DC cinematic universe, akin to what Marvel was doing with their properties. And it seemed to be the shining beacon of hope. When it hit theaters, I was like, here it is, finally. I mean, DC had stumbled out of the gate at this point with the much maligned Batman v Superman. So, you know, they're a few years late to the party, but finally, they were going to get the ball moving forward. Wonder Woman wasn't perfect, but I was stoked for what was to come because of it, because Marvel showed the power of what a joint universe could be. And let's not forget, Captain America, the first Avenger, wasn't a showstopper either. Hugo Weaving was incredible, but overall, meh. And let's not even talk about Thor pre-Taika Waititi. So was this it? Would DC finally get it right? No, they, they kind of didn't. They seemingly tossed the idea of a shared universe aside and just kept releasing a whole bunch of movies made by different people with different takes on their characters. It's kind of like DC wants them to be interconnected, like they tease that they are. But are they? It's a confusing discussion to have, even with a nerd such as myself. So is DC even trying? Are they looking to build a DCEU? This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of fandom and pop culture. I'm Fred Kennedy, and today we'll be joined by Screen Rant's editorial director, Rob Keyes, to try and figure out what the deal with DC is. Namely, is there or will there ever be an expanded cinematic universe filled with DC characters? Now, before we start discussing the DCEU, let's take a look at the history of DC and how it became involved with Warner Brothers in the first place, because honestly, it's pretty interesting. DC Comics was originally founded by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson as National Allied Publications in autumn 1934. It morphed into a bunch of titles and eventually became Detective Comics. Get it? DC? Which debuted in March of 1937. It was that line of comics that in May of 1939 introduced the Cape Crusader, Batman. Now, a lot happened since 1939, when DC first became DC, we could probably spend an entire season of podcasts giving a history lesson on what went down from 1939 to 1961, because believe me, a lot happened and a lot of lawyers made a lot of money signing a lot of contracts of ownership. But we're focusing on the much maligned DC cinematic universe. So let's fast forward to 1961, because that's when something huge happened in the world of comics. Of course, it had to do with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby completely revolutionizing Marvel Comics. At the time, they didn't have the market share of DC, of course, but they did take a big bite. And DC was confused about what was happening. Their comics were still selling well, okay? But every month, the numbers continuously showed Marvel steadily gaining. 
In what almost feels like what's happening at the box office today, DC's head started going through Marvel Comics panel by panel to analyze what made them work, what made them stand out. Marvel was building on characters and telling powerful art-driven stories that drew in an audience who were knee-deep in the social changes happening in real life. But DC were convinced that it was actually the colors they were using on the covers to make them stand out on the spinner racks and on the shelves. Or that Jack Kirby's art was primitive looking and as such attracted a dumber audience more willing to spend money. That's true, by the way. Not that Jack Kirby's art does that, but that they thought that. Yeah. Uh, but things weren't all bad for DC. In 1966, the Batman TV series debuted and bolstered their comic sales. They even camped up the comic itself to match the tone of the show. They went as far as making a movie. It was really more like an extended episode of the show that just happened to be shown in theaters. Awful as it may be, it did include one of the greatest quotes in cinematic history. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Really, just remember that when life isn't going your way. Sometimes you've just got to eat it. Like DC was eating it in the comic sales department. By the end of the 1960s, Marvel was too big to ignore, and DC brought in some formal Marvel talents like Steve Ditko to get the inside track. They also hired some young upstarts like Neil Adams, and after a while, things looked to really be turning around. But what about movies, you say? That's where the real buddy is, Hollywood! Remember a few minutes ago when I was talking about the tumultuous period between 1939 and 1961 where lawyers were making money and copyrights were flying around? Well, it was during that time Detective Comics Incorporated was bought by National Periodical Publications. And then in 1967, they were bought by Kinney National Corporation. And Kinney National Corporation bought Warner Brothers Seven Arts in 1969. Now, this is... Kind of weird, but Kinney National Corporation owned parking lots all over the U.S. and all kinds of major cities. And they found themselves facing a scandal about fixing parking rates with their competition. And that scandal made them have to split up the company. And thus, Warner Communications was born and DC Comics was now in the same stable as a massive movie studio. And this paved the way for what I would argue to be DC's first true movie, Superman, the movie, the 1978 one. Now, listen, I know there are some people that are going to dispute that statement and say Superman and the Mole Men, released in 1951, was the first DC movie, but that wasn't actually a movie. It was a collection of serials edited into a movie, which is different. There's also Stamp Day for Superman, which is a borderline propaganda short that imparts the wisdom of buying national savings bonds to children. There can only be one Superman, of course. Did you ever think about some of the super things that you can do for yourself? Well, like saving up the money for your own vacation or for that new bike that you wanted so much. Well, all you have to do is just put away part of your allowance or your odd job money and put it in United States savings stamps at school. But again, that wasn't a movie. It was just a short film shown in schools. It was written by Superman creator and Canadian Joe Schuster, so that's pretty nice. 
But what about Batman the movie, Fred? Go back and listen, okay? It did go into theaters. But it was a tie-in production with the TV show meant to build hype for the show itself and filmed with the intent of being cut up and rebroadcast on television. It was really just an ad for the show. So again, no, that's not the same thing. We're talking about creating a film, a standalone piece of visual art for the big screen. And that's why Superman takes the title, period. The studio even hired a director who really wanted to pay homage to the source material, Richard Donner, who'd recently directed The Omen and went on to direct Lethal Weapon and Lady Hawk, one of the greatest fantasy movies ever made, FYI. The studio hired an unknown to play the Man of Steel, and they surrounded him with Oscar-winning talent. They created what is a perfect origin story that mimics the comics to the T, or in this case, S. Talk to any DC fan and they'll tell you it's still one of the best DC movies ever, if not the best DC movie ever. Christopher Reeve is perfection as Superman. And that movie is timeless. There's just, there's just something special about it. Rob Keyes explains. I think that movie is uniquely timeless because as, as campy as it looks visually and as some of the scenes are, it's iconic and charming. It has like a timeless charm to it, which I'm sure you can agree to. So, yeah, that, I don't know how you recapture that in a two-hour movie. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's been done and it, it hit the iconic moment. It, it's very special in that way. Part of it, too, I think we just love the idea of Superman in that era. And it spawned a franchise that, much like DC's current movies, just seemed to fizzle as it went on. Regardless, this is a win for DC. They had the first big superhero movie, and they were ahead by a mile. But it's also where you see some of the exact same problems DC currently deals with. Decision makers and stakeholders who don't understand the story or the characters and just want to tell their story and their take on the characters themselves. And they're the ones making those big decisions about what happens on screen. Now, Superman did have the perfect origin story, but I didn't mention the ending because it's ridiculous and it makes no sense. In case you haven't seen it, decades-old spoiler alert here, like 41-year-old spoiler alert... Superman flies around the world counterclockwise, like really, really fast. And um, he makes the Earth turn backwards in doing so. And suddenly that makes time flow backwards so Superman can undo his mistakes and save Lois Lane's life, blah, 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 blah. No, that's, that's really what happens. And this was something that Richard Donner hated. It wasn't part of his script, and he fought against it to no avail. This was a studio decision. Do this or the movie doesn't happen. Now, again, it's important to note that Superman 1 and 2 were filmed at the same time. And he tolerated the time travel thing, but it was in one specific scene in Superman 2 that Donner had enough. In this scene, the one that broke the camel's back, uh, Superman has a confrontation with General Zod, the villain, and his cronies. Superman tears off the logo from his chest, the, the S, and then he throws it and... As the logo travels through the air towards the bad guys, it grows into a giant translucent net slash tarp thing and traps his enemies. Donner hated it and was dead set against it. 
And you can find different versions about this story online and in books, but the accepted story is that this scene I just mentioned broke Donner and then he left. That was the line in the sand for him. And he left before Superman 2 was even finished and he was replaced by Richard Lester, which is why the movie officially has two directors. But you can still find the Richard Donner cut out there. The version that has his vision and all the stuff that was forced on him is gone. I actually just saw a DVD for sale on Amazon while I was researching this. So, you know, it's there. It's easy to find. And it's a glimpse of what could have been, even if it is incomplete. And that's a shame because just like what you see DC doing today, there's a real sense of it could have been amazing. Sadly, the Superman franchise floundered its way through four movies, concluding with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, released in 1987. And just as Superman struggled, in 1986, something else big happened for DC. The Cape Crusader, Batman, was about to get a rebirth on the silver screen. Tim Burton, a young upstart director with a fondness for the creepy, was hired to make it happen. This was going to be a serious picture. The exact opposite of what had been done in the 1960s TV show. It was going to be huge. A new era for DC and movies. Because 1989's Batman was huge. It was the benchmark for superhero movies. And some would say it still is. It changed the game. They could be blockbusters. Tim Burton did everything he could to emulate Alan Moore's Batman masterpiece, The Killing Joke, on the big screen. And it paid off, creating a new respect for the comics medium. That movie was a cultural touchstone, period. Was this it? Was now the time DC films would skyrocket, create a whole new universe? Well, no, because just like with Superman, suddenly there were all kinds of other people in the writer's room with no business being there. By 1997, Batman and Robin was underway. And there were toy companies with just as much pull in the writer's room as actual members of DC. This movie was officially a tool to sell merchandise. And I get the idea that merchandising, especially in that era, was a huge factor in monetizing an intellectual property. But if the story sucks, like if the movie is bad, it's not going to create a fandom. It just won't last. And Rob Keyes from Screen Rant thinks that maybe this is still the issue with DC. There's just way too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, yes, that's exactly it. Although it's, I think, I would say it's layers and layers of too many cooks in too many kitchens that are trying to cross over without direction. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a problem with DC TV and DC movies, uh, especially in the movie front, though, where you have essentially different producers and different production companies and even different independent filmmakers pitching random stories and character ideas to Warner Brothers as if they were any other movie. They don't treat it like there's a DC universe. They're just, they just happen to own those IP. And so anyone they're up for grabs, which is why we have multiple jokers. And it's very unclear if we'll ever have another Superman or there's no justice league part two. And it's why we have, you know, Zack Snyder's production company making a few movies, Brett Ryder's company attached to a few, and it's why we have The Rock and his company, uh, it's called Seven Bucks Productions, why they are responsible for making Shazam, its sequel, and Black Adam. And they're not, as of yet anyway, crossing over. There's no clear direction. There's not a person on top of that 
planning out stories or filmmaking processes. It's also why we had Todd Phillips pitch and make what's essentially like an Elseworld style, totally standalone Joker movie, which of course made a billion dollars and won a bunch of Oscars. Um, but it has nothing to do with the other Joker and, and Batman. So it's very, very strange. Whereas on the flip side, uh, under the Disney umbrella or specifically Marvel Studios, it's one production company, one vision, one group of creatives, one team of producers, and one plan. It's one universe, uh, all headed up by Kevin Feige. Everyone knows Kevin Feige is the guy in charge. The actors go to him. The producers go to him. It's, it's his idea. I could not name a person who's in charge <laughs> of any of this uh, at DC and on the movie side. And it's the same thing with the, with the, film, uh, with the TV side on DC. We have Greg Berlanti making a bunch of shows, including the upcoming Stargirl. Uh, but then you don't have – you have – some shows that cross over, which we'll talk about more shortly, I think, and then some shows that don't, like the DC Universe shows or the upcoming HBO or the other upcoming HBO Max shows. So it's very confusing um, how it's handled so differently from one to the other. To be fair, to be fair, I think we also need to remember that in the late 90s, there wasn't a mass market of viewers in line for superhero content like there are today. It just wasn't taken as seriously. Back then, you didn't have the biggest directors and actors in Hollywood lining up to shoot your nerdy movie. Now, we can't talk about how insane the superhero business has gotten without talking about DC's biggest rival. Around that same time, in 1996, as DC was showing they were the reigning champs at the box office, Marvel was almost bankrupt. And to stay afloat, they sold the film rights to some of their characters. The X-Men had been a popular kids cartoon and one of their biggest titles on the spinner rack during the 90s. And Fox intended to bring them to theaters. Marvel used the influx of cash from that sale to finance their big splash into cinemas with none other than Blade. And the 1998 movie did well at the box office, bringing in over $130 million on a $43 million budget. It even spawned a film franchise and had an incredible soundtrack. And I would also argue that it paved the way for Iron Man, which came out a decade later, but I digress. It didn't save Marvel entirely like the company had hoped for, and they were forced to sell the rights for Spider-Man to Sony Pictures in 1999. Meanwhile, DC stayed relatively quiet until 2005 when Batman Begins was released. By now, the movie world was a drastically different place than a decade earlier. DC didn't have a monopoly on superhero flicks anymore. Fox released two X-Men movies with X-Men and X2, coming out in 2000 and 2003, respectively. And rather than the campy, toy-driven romps that DC had released in the late 90s, both of those Fox properties really took the subject matter seriously. They were telling adult stories, directly confronting the social issues of acceptance and intolerance, which, of course, goes back to the original comic. And that scene with Nightcrawler at the beginning of X2, it's, it's still one of the greatest scenes in comic book movie history. Uh, Spider-Man, also huge for Sony in 2002. And again, the movie was an on-screen version of the comic instead of an extended toy commercial. So... DC and Warner Brothers reached into their pocket for that tried and true sentinel of justice that had worked so well before, Batman. Or in this case, Batman. They knew it needed to be done properly to cut through the clutter and dispel the bad aftertaste Batman and Robin left in people's mouths. They gave the writing and directorial duties to British director Christopher Nolan, responsible for the 2000 cult classic Memento. The adult 
art house treatment of Batman Begins went broader than the comic book crowd. People who weren't going to comic book shops fell in love with Christian Bale and Batman all over again. So if Batman did well in a serious adult-focused film, what about the cowlick himself? What about Superman? After all, Superman is Superman. Everyone knows him. Everyone loves him, right? So in 2004, pre-production began for Superman Returns. Warner even hired the now much maligned creator of X-Men and X2, Brian Singer, to breathe new life into the Man of Steel. I mean, how could this not work? Singer was riding high from the X-Men movies. He legitimized comic movies. Singer even went as far as reaching out to Richard Donner himself because the studio was desperate to recreate the magic of that 1978 Superman debut. But Brian Singer is not Richard Donner. It's important to know the characters, to get the characters. And there are some clutch differences in tone between Superman and X-Men that Mr. Singer failed to grasp. And in the end, that sense of hope and wonder that made 1978's Superman just so perfect wasn't there. This was emo Superman. Sad, boring teenager in a room listening to piano sonatas, writing miserable poetry, Superman. I mean, Superman is needed to stop a real estate scam? Really? That's what we're doing here? And a shame for Brandon Ruth, because he was a great Superman, worthy of Christopher Reeve's legacy. And he had a great costume, too. I always loved that costume. The briefs? Magnificent. Sadly, it was the only time we'd get to see it. On the big screen, anyways. And the world would not wait for DC to figure its shit out. And other major studios kept churning out superhero movies. Some good, some bad. But in 2008, everything changed. Everything changed. Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige released their own movie. A movie Marvel itself held the rights to. Not a studio. The comic company themselves. There would be no meddling. This had happened with Blade, as we mentioned earlier, but times were different now. The market was different. It was just the right time. And all the pieces slid together perfectly. It was just one of those moments where everything is just right. Rob Keyes, once again. Yeah, and also you got to go back to the why that happened. Like when Marvel Studios began, it was a completely independent entity fighting for every scrap of dollar they could get. And it was like a ragtag group. It was like a line producer here, a behind the scenes person here, and then Kevin Feige, who was like an assistant to the Donners, uh, you know, back when he helped uh, Lauren Schuler Donner and, and Richard Donner produce like the X Men films. You know what I mean? Like it was a, that is not a normal corporate structure for a studio. So they no. were able to come in there and play lowball. They got. Uh, lesser known actors like Hems- nobody knew who Hemsworth was. He was an Australian soap opera actor when he came over here. Chris Evans was like a known quantity, but not like a leading star for big budget movies. And then as a solo actor, anyways, uh, we knew him from Fantastic Four and other movies like that. Uh, and then Downey was like nobody wanted to work with him. He was blacklisted. And John Favreau, they got a, a you know coming off of Elf. Who would have thought this guy would do a superhero movie? So it was very different. It's not like the Warner Brothers, which is an established old studios. Marvel Studios was his own thing that was just embracing coming out of bankruptcy in the '90s, right? And they found a formula. It's like that movie Moneyball. They found they played the numbers game, played smart with money, and they planned out long term seeds because they were allowed to do that. They were comic geeks making this making this thing. So 
that will never happen again. Everyone's trying to chase it. I mean, even Disney's trying to chase it. Disney got Kathleen Kennedy to take over, you know, one of the biggest producers of all time in Hollywood to take over the, the you know, Lucasfilm and the Star Wars franchise with the mandate of copy Marvel, get this thing up to speed so we can do two or three movies a year. And even that didn't work with Star Wars. Can you believe that? Star Wars couldn't even replicate the Marvel model. So right now, no one can. Uh, it's it's so big. They're now encapsulating other studios that own Marvel properties. We have like Spider-Man in there now. Uh, and they've acquired X-Men and Fantastic Four that are going to be in there now. So um, they hit the nail on the head in terms of timing and doing it the right way and then constantly, constantly building on top of each success. Um, whereas everyone else is trying to reverse engineer that under the restrictions of old corporate contracts and producer issues. You know what I mean? Iron Man became the model for Marvel, doing big things with little pieces. Iron Man was known, but he wasn't very popular outside of comic circles, so they needed to rely on something else. Story and character. They needed this movie to be good on its own terms because they plan to build around it and create something bigger to use it as the first stop on a roadmap to a movie universe that mimicked their comic universe. One with continuity that could spawn an entire juggernaut. This was the approach George Lucas had used for Star Wars when he was starting out. So why not give it a go with comics? And 2008 was a big year for comic book movies because later that same year, DC answered Iron Man's challenge with... The Dark Knight. In it, Heath Ledger plays the Joker and is one of the greatest performances you will ever see in a comic-based movie or any movie, period. The 2008 movie, The Dark Knight, made over a billion dollars at the box office and compared to Iron Man, which made a respectable half billion dollars, DC thought, no problem, buddy, we're still on top. But that was going to change because Marvel really was about to revolutionize the superhero game and they were aggressive about it. Iron Man was indeed merely a first stop. And over the next four years, Marvel churned out movie after movie after movie, culminating with the Avengers, which brought in $1.5 billion. They also moved into TV using characters that were introduced in the movies. And they were all part of the same universe, featuring cameos from the film actors to bolster the presence for the small screen counterparts. They created interest in that universe that they built because the audience never really left it, ever. No matter what you were watching, that's where you were. Meanwhile, DC released The Dark Knight Rises, which barely made any more money than its predecessor, and took in less money than the Avengers by over $400 million. DC also debuted their new TV show, Arrow, based on the social justice-focused billionaire Oliver Queen, a.k.a. The Green Arrow. But the key difference is this show had its own universe. Apart from the events we'd seen on the screen, apart from other DC TV shows entirely, and thus another crossover opportunity was lost, for DC, sort of, okay? They do these annual crossover events with our TV properties, but they always come across so schlocky, I've never really cared to watch. They pulled out all the stops with their latest one, Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it's contrived, to say the least. I just listen to Rob try to explain it all, and this is just the Coles notes. Okay, so let's just say there are a, a slate 
of five or six TV shows, uh, but they're not necessarily all connected. Every year, what they dubbed the Arrowverse, this is the universe started with, with Arrow starring Stephen Amell, which is now over, but it, that was the first show and that launched The Flash, and then we got Supergirl, and now we have you know Black Lightning and a short-lived Constantine show on different networks where they're trying, because DC, in, sorry, because Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers Television does own all these characters, even if they're on different networks, they can work out deals and find ways to put them all together. So once a year, uh, one of those TV or the CW finds a way to create an event end of year series of the fall where like over the course of a couple of weeks or a couple of days, they manage to fit characters from all these shows together in different ways. And it's tricky because some of these characters come from different timelines and some of these characters come from different universes, or in this case, they call them different earths. Um, they had their own version of the multiverse, just like Marvel Comics does. Uh, and essentially, yeah, there's like a ultimate godlike uh, hero and villain of sorts, the monitor versus the anti-monitor. And as one does, the anti-monitor wants to destroy the multiverse once learning of it and jumps around different dimensions and grabs power from one flash and tries to create this what's essentially called, we're getting re really into geeky stuff here, but he creates the antimatter wave, which is going through and destroying universes. So it's up to the heroes we know from Earth One, you know, that's the Flash and, and, and uh, Arrow and those main shows, and heroes from other Earths, including, you know, Cara Danvers, Supergirl from Earth 38, and they have to jump around different timelines and grab different objects and heroes and find these ultimate heroes with the help of the Monitor, that's the good god, <laughs> to try to stop the anti-monitor and this antimatter wave from destroying the universe. And Anyways, long story short, what ends up happening is a bunch of heroes die, and it resets the status quo. We have a new multiverse, a new continuity, and of course, everyone forgets what happened, and all these, some of these continuity problems of the past, like Supergirl and Arrow living in different universes, those have been conveniently combined into a new Earth one, which they call Earth Prime. So now we have Supergirl living in the same universe or Earth as um, Flash and the other remaining heroes. Dude, I'm lost. And I have DC characters tattooed on my body. And compare what you just heard with what you saw Marvel doing at the same time with Netflix, ABC, and soon to be Disney+. But back in 2012, Marvel just continued to grow day by day and DC realized they really were fighting on their heels. Marvel started announcing full slates of movies in phases, all of them building off each other, all of them set to culminate in this far-off mega blockbuster promised to be released years later. What was DC going to do? Well, releasing non-mainstream characters wouldn't work. They'd already tried that and failed miserably with the Green Lantern and Jonah Hex. Was the problem that they hadn't bothered to try and make good movies with those characters? Nah. The problem was that they needed huge characters. And who's huger than Big Blue himself? Superman. Brace yourself, because we're going to have to backtrack just like a few years here. In 2009, DC released The Watchmen, which some people loved and others hated. I I loved it. I really did. That scene with Dr. Manhattan is incredible. And Rob also loved the movie, which is which is nice. There are so many moments in that. Like for a movie that really capture, captures page by page the panels, you know what I mean? Except for the ending change, which to me was okay for the film. But um, that movie is like near perfect. Like and, and the tone of it, it was ahead of its time. And the fact that they were able to make that movie the way they did with the cast they did is why Zack Snyder got the job for Superman in the first place. 
And The Watchmen performed pretty respectfully at the box office. It was directed by Zack Snyder, who loves making dark, gritty, violent movies, which worked for The Watchmen, because that's what it is. But Superman is light. He is hope. He is wonder. Not dark, gritty. Did anyone think of this? But Man of Steel hit theaters, and as you can expect, despite having a perfect actor portraying Kal-El, it failed in multiple ways to capture that fandom insanity that Marvel had been building. But rather than stop, reevaluate, DC doubled down and brought Zack back to direct Batman v Superman, a movie that was supposed to be the beginning of the DC Cinematic Universe. It featured Lex Luthor, a horribly retconned Doomsday, the villain who killed Superman in the comics back in 1993, Batman, Superman, and a ham-fisted-in Wonder Woman, because why bother introducing all these characters one at a time? Let's just make it all happen. Batman v Superman turned a profit. Yes, but it wasn't a great movie, and it definitely did not garner the same affection that Marvel had up to at this point, so... What did DC do? Well, something right, again, and something wrong, again. Because there's something known as motifs. That something right featured the amazing Patty Jenkins behind the camera, known for her Oscar-winning film Monster, Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman told a story that was desperately needed, a female-centric superhero. It even beat Marvel to the punch, who for some reason abstained for making a Black Widow movie, even though she'd been introduced multiple times at this point. And Rob Keyes and I are just in total agreement. It was high time for the First Lady of Justice. Uh, it made sense that Wonder Woman would be next because they, we had Superman and we had BVS, which, you know, it's called BVS, but Wonder Woman played a major, major part of that, obviously. So we knew that was coming next. So it really, really made sense. And it was also a good idea to kind of play that one, not as a continuing uh, expansion of the that story, but like more of a prequel story to set up her character because they were doing it backward, obviously. I was always against the idea of DC just doing Justice League first and then doing spinoffs. To me, the beauty of the Avengers or any of these team-ups is that you have heroes who have overcome their own obstacles. They've earned their mark, so to speak, and then you see these completely different people who have accomplished amazing things on their own come together for the greater good. DC was like, no, nah, no, nah, here's a bunch of heroes. You'll figure them out later. So it's like... I. I that was the negative of, of it for me, but I thought one woman earned her spot. Was this a sign that things had turned around at Camp DC? No, because they promptly followed Wonder Woman up with Justice League, a movie that relied on Jason Momoa being an aquatic himbo, very handsome one though, seizure-inducing CGI, and a villain named Steppenwolf that nobody had ever heard of making some people think that the band had made a cameo. But they did it. DC had their big superhero team on the screen. Bear in mind, we'd already seen two Avengers movies by this point, and Marvel was raking in billions of dollars annually off the countless tie-in movies, but finally DC had created its own DC Cinematic Universe, the DCEU. Sadly, it was openly mocked by even the most ardent of DC comic fans. The same fans who still loved Green Lantern after the movie. The same fans who still preached the virtues of Superman after Man of Steel had now given up. 
The reasons were clear. The brilliance of the characters one sees every month at the comic shop were not coming through on the big screen. DC reacted, and in June of 2018, they shuffled their creative staff again and placed Walter Hamada at the head. This was meant to be the beginning of a new direction, a single vision, but was it? That's something you often hear when griping about DC movies, the idea of staying on a single course, and it's hard to argue against. There's been so many changes behind the scenes in the DC slash Warner camp over the past few years. So many new directions, so many new visions and new plans. Now, Walter Hamada seems to have made a strong effort to right the ship. Instead of doubling down on the grit and darkness, which became so omnipresent during the Snyder years, DC's really lightened up a bit in terms of the movies they're approving. For the most part, though, (coughs) Joker. Joker. They've created movies that although many would say aren't as good as what Marvel has done, they're still enjoyable. Aquaman debuted in the holiday film season of 2018 and went on to pull in over a billion dollars globally. A few months later, Shazam was released, and again, compared to what had been released recently, they didn't take themselves over seriously. They weren't really dark, and people enjoyed some of that camp. But I'm wondering, is this what the DCEU is supposed to be now? Like standalone movies? Is there any plan at all to tie in these movies together? I'll let Rob Keyes explain. Uh, at this at this very moment, no. There is no plan in the cards. There's no timeline of films. It's just filmmakers who have good ideas that's just try to make something. Um it's super confusing. I mean, just look at Batman, which, by the way, the photos coming out from Matt Reeves' Batman, to me, look very awesome. I'm very I love the new that. Batmobile. I think it looks incredible. They were producing this, or like at the pre, you know, the early development, pre-production, while they were still figuring out if Ben Affleck's going to be involved. Like, Ben Affleck was supposed to direct it. He had a script written. He was going to play the character. It was going to be in the same continuity as BVS and, and, and Justice League, RIP. Um, but secretly behind the scenes, they also had Matt Reeves doing his completely original thing. You know what I mean? And then they also, they were talking about making a Joker spinoff movie of Jared Leto's Suicide Squad Joker. At the same time, Todd Phillips was pitching a this other Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. So it's like, what? None of that makes any sense from a story planning perspective. They can call them Elseworlds stories or whatever they want. But so that is very indicative of there being no plan. And also, I mean, I'm sure you, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on this, but there's a lot of behind the scenes corporate drama going on when Justice League was in development and there was a an awfully necessitated director change on that and a bunch of problems behind the scenes. So we have a Justice League part one and a bunch of spinoffs that were supposed to come out of that. And now we have none of those spinoffs, really. Uh, we don't even know if Henry Cavill is going to play Superman again. We don't even know that. It's wild. Cyborg doesn't have a movie anymore. There's no Green Lantern Corps movie. They're making a TV show instead. And the Flash movie has gone through 38 directors or something. So it's like... It No, to answer your question, there is no overall plan, and they started something. This is back when it was, again, one person in charge. It was a Christopher Nolan, Zack Snyder get-up at the beginning. Their plan was to get Superman, the quote-unquote crown jewel of the DC Universe, and if they got that right, they would do the follow-up, and that quickly became convoluted as it kept throwing in more and more characters and cameos, BBS, and that would launch the Justice League, which would spawn out this franchise in the Justice League Part Two. They didn't even get past their phase one 
while they were trying to chase the Marvel Studios model. Um, and then it all fell apart. And now they're just scrambling to make whatever movies make money. And sometimes it works, like The Joker. Sometimes it completely bombs, like Birds of Prey. If I'm being blunt about DC's recent successes, I don't think anyone actually went to the theater for Aquaman. I think they went to ogle Jason Momoa. That's it, really. At least that's why my wife went. And that's okay. If that's what you want, that's fine. But I don't think it's a good or strong way to build a fandom. It won't last. And that's the crux of what I think DC has done wrong. They've ignored the source material, the ideas that made these characters and their universes so timeless. They have thousands, thousands of stories from incredible writers to draw from, and yet consistently those elements are ignored in favor of whatever fits the current bill, of whatever the reaction is. Marvel was building towards a storyline first published in comics back in 1990, and they were heading in that direction from the very beginning of the MCU in 2008's Iron Man. So I needed to ask Rob Keyes, if he was given leeway to completely reboot the DCEU, what would he do? I would try to start with a character who sets the stage. I almost think they had the right idea at first with what they're doing now or what they did you know, a couple of years ago with DCEU, like having Superman in there as the iconic start and then starting to fill in the backstory with other characters like Wonder Woman and then go out forward would have been a better idea. It's just as soon as they got into crossovers and team-ups, they kind of threw it out the window. They should have done, you know, everyone says this, but they should have followed the Marvel formula. They had Iron Man Cap 4, and in those movies, you got introduced to Black Widow and Hawkeye, then you had your original, original team and your original alien invasion, and from there you can expand, expand, expand. They did it all backwards at DC. So uh, I can't think of a comic story I would really be into, but I would start with a character like Superman or doing like a more grounded Earth-level character like Green Arrow. Did you ever hear, this is a t- bit of a tangent, but did you ever hear about that Supermax movie they almost made a decade ago? Super that was like Green Arrow in like the, the basically supervillain Supermax prison and he would come across the Joker and all these other DC villains. You got to look up Supermax. I think it was, was going to be called Supermax, but it was a, basically the Green Arrow movie. Uh, but a very unique take on it. And it would have launched a bunch of franchises. Something like that, but done the other way, where he introduced other heroes that way, would be kind of a neat idea as well. But um, I would take a character like that we haven't seen on the big screen in a solo movie and kind of build out a franchise around that. I love that idea. And I think my idea would be a bit similar. And, and just as Marvel focused on one of their timeless comic story arcs and built around it, I would choose Kingdom Come from Mark Wade and Alex Ross, public back in 1996. I wouldn't try and ape it, per se. I would use the structure of the overall comic to begin introducing characters in that shared universe. Like, Superman is the paragon of justice, but people are tiring over his ideals and his ideas of forgiveness. Over the course of several other movies, introducing us to various other elements and characters from this shared universe... We'd come to meet Magog, an anti-hero who demands blood for blood. And I'd really paint him as a hero. Like, I'd let the viewers think he's the champion, he's the hero. Um, and, and you'd bring him at odds with each other. Superman protesting, saying that it's wrong to kill, that this is getting out of hand, all that stuff. But people are like, whatever, old man. And sure enough, Magog and his cronies go too far and there's an accident fighting a villain or something and a massive disaster happens that wipes Smallville from the map. And Superman is like, see, dickheads, 
This is what I told you was going to happen. Gone. And I saved that big event for the first shared movie. Like, it ends with him being like, fuck this, I'm out. And then we get some more isolated movies where all the victories are really, like, Pyrrhic victories. Like, at the end of Empire Strikes Back, where they win, but they don't really win. You know, at what cost? Things just keep getting worse. But just when we're like, man, this is getting dark, Superman shows up, reunites the JL, and him and Wonder Woman just plow through everybody. And there's a whole movie with him and Batman at odds after he comes back, like Batman telling him he's a coward who threw in the towel. But in the end, you know, they unite to bring down a bigger foe who turns out to be Shazam! What a twist, right? Well, not to anyone who read the comic. But dude, I got TV shows and everything all ready to be tied in together and unite the DCEU. It's just a shame that isn't going to happen. Not for me, at least. Not for anyone, really. But at least it feels like DC is putting out a few better movies these days. Joker was great. And a clutch statement about why a good publicly funded healthcare system is a great way to prevent the creation of sociopathic mass murderers. And Shazam may be youthfully focused fodder, but that's okay. It was really enjoyable. And my kids sat through the whole thing, which means a lot to me these days. I'll stick around, DC. I've loved you too long to walk away now, and I have too many tattoos. It'd just be embarrassing at this point. Now, as we do every week, I'm going to leave you with an Issue Zero Recommends. And since we've been talking so much about comics, that's what I'm going to recommend. A comic, namely Black Sad. It's perfect. The paneling, the art, it's absolutely gorgeous. The first volume was published here in North America back in 2000, but there's only a few books and collections out there. I think there's five collections specifically. It was originally published in French and Spanish from Spanish creators Juan Diaz Canales and Juanjo Guarnido. I think I said that right, but I'm terrible. Uh, it's set in this weird 1950s post-war America populated by Disney-esque anthropomorphic animals, which plays nicely with the grim crime stories the books tell. Uh, we follow the main character, John Blacksad, a chain-smoking, toughest nails, and ruggedly handsome cat as he navigates the seedy underbelly, bringing down crooks and crooked politicians and industrial magnates. You'll love it. I know you will. Support your local comic book shop. A huge thank to our guest, Rob Keyes, editorial director over at Screen Rant, for coming on the show today. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to our wonderful guest, Rob. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Fearless underscore Fred, on Facebook and Instagram. You could also email me at issuezero at CuriousCast.ca. Uh, this show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, our marvelous producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnson. See you next time for more Issue Zero. <laughs>